You are listening to Quelly TV Podcast, dedicated to the issue, stories, and culture of the global Black community. Our culture curated. I'm really excited to have Booker T. Matheson on to talk about his awesome, great shorts on Quelly TV. He's been a platform now for like, what, a year or so? Well, I think now it's it's been... It's been like four years. The first one, Habeas Corpus, was the the Color of Change contest through Ebony.com, and then uh, Bird came later. So it's been like four years. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because you're right. Because we did have a partnership with Ebony before things changed with the company, and that was while we were in beta. And you, yeah, your film was one of the award-winning films. I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> it's all coming yeah. back now. <laughs> Look, I'm happy to have been uh, partnering with you from the ground floor. I I feel happy about that. Well, I'm happy that you've been sticking with us. You know, anyone who's an entrepreneur, you know the ups and downs of starting a company. And we have people like Booker who sticks by you. It really means a lot. So thank you so much for having your films. Thank you so much for being a part of the Quilly TV family. Well, that's great. And and I'll share this with you. I was meeting with a student, I'm a professor at the University of Georgia. I was meeting with a student last year and she is interested in getting into distribution. And when she found out that I had two films on Quelly, she was like, really? You know, I mean, she had heard about the company and um, another colleague of mine, I forget, uh, she lives in Philly. And she also was consulting with another uh, individual who was talking about, you know, starting like a streaming platform. I'm like, well, that sounds like what I'm already a part of. So the word is getting around. People know about the service. So kudos to you for having the vision and continuing to grow it. So I'm really proud of you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. But it's not about me, it's about you. I really want to get dive into you as a filmmaker <laughs> and your projects. So you have two films on the platform. If you can talk briefly about both films, they're both very different, have very different topics, very different symbolism. So if you want to just kind of dive right in. Uh, well, I could, I could talk first about Bird, uh, since that one was, um, I guess, the, the more recent of the two films. Mm-hmm. Bird is the story of a college track star training for the Olympics who was accused of a crime. It took me probably, I don't know, 40 years to have the courage and the confidence to really deal with the subject, because in addition to the wrongful conviction, it also addresses sexual violence in prison, which is something that is very uncomfortable to talk about, so we don't really talk about that much. So I wanted to explore those two issues in a film. And for the first time, I wanted to explore advocacy in the context of a narrative film where the story allows the audience access into an uncomfortable topic. So after the film, people are more comfortable talking about these issues. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the beauty of film and narrative film, as you mentioned, because, you know, you're giving people information without it being like knocking people ahead with it. They're learning, but they're also becoming entertained at the same time. It's like a, a soft pill, I guess, when it comes yeah. to giving people information. Soft pill. That would be a great title for a short film, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, that's true. Talk about preparing for making this particular film, because you said if for you, it took you over 40 years to be able to do something like this. Talk right. about, you know, how you, did you visit a prison? Did you talk to people who were incarcerated? Talk about the process of, of making this film. Absolutely. Um, I had uh, two people very close to me who were in prison, uh, both of them for very, very long periods of time. And sexual violence, we all kind of know happens. And I'm not suggesting it happened to those two individuals at all. I'm not suggesting that at all. But, you know, I I did go to visit uh, 
both of them. Actually, three people met at Big Five. But they go to visit them and, you know, and there's violence that happens and we know that in these prisons. So uh, for me, it was something that, that had always haunted me. This issue of, you know, uh, false imprisonment and sexual violence in prison, both of them, you know, really have haunted me my entire life because, you know, I'm, I'm a small guy. And, you know, on top of that, you know, I, I always looked very, very young. So, you know, I'm just like, wow, if I would have gotten locked up, I, I would have been a target. I hadn't handled that. So it wasn't until, until I was 43, you know, where, where I had the courage to address that in an actual narrative, you know, because those stories that are the most uncomfortable and the most personal, the most difficult, they're the hardest to make, but usually they resonate most with audiences. Right, I agree. And it's interesting, too, you mentioned that, you know, at 43 is when you had the courage to do it. And in the film, the person who's wrongly, wrongly convicted, he's the up-and-coming track star and so much promise. And we hear so many stories about young Black men, typically, you know, very, very young, who get convicted of a crime they didn't commit. And that is the reality, right? Where they're in a the prison, they're young, they're small because they're underage and they're faced with this reality and probably having to fight for their lives every single day in prison. Right. Yeah, and it's been so many stories, you know, uh, and projects of late, you know, the Brian Banks story, the Central Park Five, mm -hmm. Router, the young guy from Rikers. Who, right, right. You know, the, the brother was in there, had a horrible experience, then when he got out because of the trauma, he, you know, he commits suicide. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult topic. And, and interestingly enough, you know, I do believe the film is very effective as evidenced by the fact that whenever I screen that film, no matter where I screen it, when the movie ends, people, they never clap. They never clap because, you know, it's like, wait a minute, they're so uncomfortable, mm -hmm. you know, hey, no applause, then they clap, but it's like, okay, we're supposed to clap about that? Right, right. <laughs> Which to me is a sign of the effectiveness of the film, when people are so moved by it that they don't even think to clap, they're just really dealing with what they just saw. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a great film, but like I said, in most screenings, people are like, oh, phenomenal film, like the urge is to clap, but you know that that's people's real reality, right? You know, we know people right. are actually wrongly convicted and then they are assaulted in prison. And so it's kind of hard for people to clap knowing that that's the reality for a lot of young black men. Right. Here's another interesting story. So I guess not long after I finished the films, probably in uh, 2016 or so, there was a, a guy who, who had come to the house to, to do some repairs. And, you know, we struck up a conversation in Jersey, and, uh, you know, talk, hey, I lived in New Jersey and you know, we had several um, interesting connections. So, you know, when he found out I was a filmmaker, I said, hey, check out my latest film. So, you know, how you, you, if your living room is set up where you have like the TV, then the couch and like mm -hmm. the kitchen, so you can see people as they're watching something. Right. I was watching him, you know, so I could see his back as he was watching the film and he was very uncomfortable, like squirming, fidgeting in the seat. So after the film, again, opened up this conversation, ends up that this guy was in prison. But here's the twist. He was an enforcer in prison. So the guards used to use him to enforce their will. And again, I didn't ask him if his enforcement included sexual assault, but he was very, very, very uncomfortable watching that film. And I, I was like, wow, that's interesting because typically you, you would think that someone who, if they had, if they themselves had been abused, would be uncomfortable. But, you know, with the way that he was reacting, I, my wife and I said, I wonder if this brother was an enforcer. He was, you know, not just physically abusing people, but sexually abusing them too. Well, I know you never know. I mean, maybe he would never admit that, of course, but what other reactions do you get from the film? And you mentioned that people don't clap. I mean, what do you hope people get out of the film when they see it? 
Well, uh, one, it's always healthy when uh, you're able to take a subject that remains in the dark too often and bring it into the light. There's a catharsis that happens when you discuss it. And I think it's even therapeutic. And uh, for example, uh, like when I would do a screening at a university, I would have someone from either the mental health community or someone from criminal justice. And then of course, you know, it'd be myself and if the actors, you know, were in town or if it was local screening. So it'd be a combination of, oh, someone from law enforcement, you know, I had a judge on one panel, I had the uh, district attorney on another panel. So it was an incredible experience to, to show the film in a room full of people. And then you have these experts at the end who can talk about the various issues because you also want to make sure that you are having a healthy conversation because all conversations aren't healthy. So for me, just the experience of people actually sharing and saying things in a room full of people that some of them had never mentioned to anyone before was extraordinarily helpful. And then for those who didn't, who haven't personally gone through uh, that kind of trauma, the awareness component is huge because, you know, another uh, thing that happened, I had a, he's actually, you know, you have your cousin's cousins, you call them your cousin, but they're not really your cousin. So a, a cousin's cousin, who was a, he was a deputy sheriff who, you know, the sheriffs, they work in the jails, showed it to him and his. Uh, girlfriend also and they were just like wow that's that's the way jail really is mm -hmm. which to me was a win because you know I wanted it to be grounded in a reality so that it was one respectful of what happens but also realistic enough so that people will be impacted in a way so like you know this is something that happens it's something that we don't either want to talk about or we want to ignore but it's good to get those things into the light that's so true I mean and it's great that you're getting that type of reaction from people whether they were formerly incarcerated or even those who are law enforcement as well so it's good for you know both sides you're getting a, a pretty positive reaction from the film absolutely one of the things I was really curious about, too, for watching the film, you're an independent filmmaker, so a lot of independent filmmakers have a big budget, but it was very realistic when it came to the scenery, when it came to where it was shot. And so talk about finding a space to make everything look so realistic from, from the prison, you know, to, to the university. Like, talk about how you're able to pull all of that together as an independent filmmaker on a limited budget. Absolutely, that's a great question. And at the time that I made the film, I was a professor at Regent. And one of the benefits of being a professor there is that you could actually use the equipment and you also, you know, the, the production insurance. And that film, believe it or not, was made with current and former students of mine. Oh. So we had a very, very small crew. So I was able to use the equipment from Regent University, the production insurance from Regent University, current and former students. One, that kept the budget extraordinarily low. Then the rest of the money I actually raised. It was the first film that I made that actually raised money from amongst you know, my friends and supporters. Uh, but as far as the locations go, I ignorantly thought that, because um, I was living in Chesapeake, Virginia at the time, and there was a, a state prison maybe 15 minutes from my house. So again, I'm trying to be strategic because you know, I don't have a lot of money or time, which no filmmaker ever had. Right. Like, hey, I'm going to go down the street and shoot at the prison. So what I discovered after scouting several prisons and jail is that you can't shoot in an active prison or jail because of liability issues. So I contacted the Virginia Film Office and told them what I was looking for, and they actually referred me to the prison where we wound up shooting. The hook was it was an hour and 45 minutes away from where I lived. It was right outside of Richmond, Virginia. So I had no other alternative but to do that. But that, of course, cut into my shoot day because when you're putting a crew on the road and you're traveling, that cuts into those 12 hours that you have to shoot. So it did make the budget go up. And at the same time, to your point, it was, uh, it was a really, really awesome location because it was a closed prison. It had no um, 
inmates in it. And uh, it looked really good and it worked perfectly for the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering about that. So, like, how did you shoot? Because I do know you're not supposed to shoot like in an active prison. So, like, I'm like, where did he find this location? It was really interesting. But I'm right, so you knew something that I didn't know. But, uh, but the university in the film, I, I went to Norfolk State University as an undergraduate. So I reached out to, and I still have you know, a relationship with the Mass Communications Department, which is my major. So I reached out to the university. They were very, very helpful. They essentially told me they let me do whatever I wanted. So the football stadium, that's Norfolk State. Believe it or not, you'll appreciate this. The shower was actually at Norfolk State, even though it's, it's supposed to be the shower at the prison, because I wanted to, because you can't find those showers like that, you know, the old school. Right, right. And then they allowed me to use the actual, you know, Norfolk State track uniform. It's great. And I still have Norfolk State track shirts that I wear around. And people ask me, hey, did you run track in college? I'm like, no, but I made a movie, though. What's with Tom Bird? Right, right. So it was a combination of, you know, my former university, Virginia Film Office, and then that trailer park, believe it or not, that was like, you know, 10 minutes down the road from my house. And look, it looked a lot worse in person than it did on film, but it was perfect for the character. So it was a lot of fun making that film. It really was. And on your budget, how many days did it take you to, to make the film? It was like the, I think it's eight minutes, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's like eight, maybe eight and a half minutes, not including in credits. And we shot for four days over Memorial Day weekend in 2015. And then we did have one pickup day. Oh, and here's another interesting thing about that film is that, you know, the final scene, whenever he's about to do the race, that was an actual race. And there were like, it was, uh, what was it, over, was it, is it over a thousand people, over 10,000 people, I forget. This huge race that's been going on for like 20 something years. So the producer, also a former student, she actually, you know, contacted the race representatives and um, they let us come out. And again, we had to do that shot in one take because, you know, it's not you can say cut back to one and have what a thousand or ten however many people thousands of people <laughs> go back right. to their first position so we had to nail that shot and uh we did and you know the fact that we're shooting in 4k we were able to crop the image so it looked like we had coverage you know from the wide medium shot mm-hmm. so it was uh you know fly by the seat of your pants it had a documentary feel to it because you know in those instances you can't redo it you got to get it on the first take right right wow that's a really great story and the story came out you know, wonderfully. So I'm happy that you did it. I'm happy that, you know, this story's out here and, and people, hopefully there will be more conversations about wrongful convictions and things that happen to people, you know, once they're in prison, whether or not they did it or not. No one deserves to be attacked in prison, whether or not they committed a crime. So I think You're it's right. a really, really You're great right. story. And, and see that, dude, the challenge that I have, you know, with the climate that we're in now is that when you dehumanize people, when injustice is done to them, it's like, well, who cares? They're not even human. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that's not how it works. The bottom line is a human being is a human being and they deserve basic human treatment and basic human rights. Well, they committed a crime. Okay, so that means that they should be violated now. I agree. Everyone should be protected. And you're right, especially now with this climate with the immigration issue and, and people being treated like, not even like animals, because a lot of Americans tend to treat the animals very well, sometimes better than humans. And it's really right. disgusting. <laughs> it is. I mean, I have nothing against animals. I don't want anyone emailing me about your animal, but I just feel like people tend to care for and protect animals sometimes more than humans. Right. And it's really starting to bother me with this whole immigration issue. And it makes you wonder, like, what's happening to those people? They're all in this confined space besides not being protected and living in these horrible conditions, not having soap and all of that. Like, what else is going on behind those closed right. doors? 
Right. And there have been you know, allegations of sexual assault in these immigration spaces, which is really, really unfortunate. And, you know, I think about Kafka's metamorphosis. Perhaps that's a better metaphor because you're right. People treat their pets and animal rights activists. They are very, very vocal about animals. But you know what? People don't like bugs. So let's say bugs. Right. <laughs> they treat people like bugs, you know, and it's like, no, they're, they're not bugs. They're, they're not arachnids. They're human beings. Right, that's so true. So switching gears to your first film that's on Quilly TV, a lot of heavy hitters. I know it's quite a few people from The Wire in that yeah. film. Talk about how you even connected with them and, and be able to make this film. That film was a little bit longer, actually. It's like 23 minutes or so. Yeah, I think it's like around like... um maybe 18 okay like 19 minutes but yeah yeah it's long, definitely longer than bird but by a long shot almost three times as long chad l coleman was the star and you know you all know chad l coleman he's currently in the x fans mm-hmm. the walking dead he played um tyrese in the, in the walking dead mm-hmm. so chad and i we met wow in 1998 was it 99 wow when i cast him in his first leading role in my film, The Gilded Six Bits, which would wound up airing on Showtime. That was my graduate thesis film. So I met Chad back then, and then after that film, he and I actually, we were roommates, <laughs> we were, and we were very, very good friends to this day. So I reached out to um, Chad whenever I, I'd read this article in the, in the what's the Detroit paper? The Detroit- Free uh, Press, I believe. Yeah, the Detroit Free Press, exactly. I read an article about a guy whose dad died, and he stole his body from the funeral home, thinking that God would raise him from the dead. I'm like, wow, that's an intriguing setup for a film. So I sent Chad the article. He said, hey, Chad, what do you think of this, man? What do you think of, you know, making making a short film? He said, hey, great idea. So, you know, that time he was on The Walking Dead, which is the number one show on TV. Mm-hmm. I banged out a draft of the script, and then he was actively involved in giving notes, essentially, you know, helping to develop it. So once he committed, he reached out to Jamie Hector, who played, uh, he now plays in Bosch of the Amazon series, but people most popularly know him as um, My Name is My Name from The Wire. Uh, uh, Drats, forgetting the name. But Jamie and I, ironically enough, we knew each other because we went to the same church in Brooklyn. Mm. Because his breakout role was in a short film called Five Deep Breaths done by one of my good friends, former film school classmate, Seat Mann. So he and I met through him working with Seat, and uh, so he committed. And then Tim Reed, mm-hmm. who most people know as, as uh, Sister Sister, he plays ironically the same character named Ray, Sister Sister, and older people like me, WKRP in Cincinnati. He went to uh, Norfolk State, so we went to the same undergraduate institution, and once again, my institution helping me out. I reached out to uh, the chair. Her name was uh, Dr. Wanda Brockington. She's since retired. We knew Tim. I asked her if she'd pass along a message that I was interested in working with him. So she got the script to him. He read it. He liked it and wanted to be a part of it. So I was able to get him. And then uh, Lee Chamberlain, rest her soul. Uh, Habeas Corpus was her last film. But I remembered her from you know the, movie, the movies and TV shows from the 70s. <laughs> so it just so happened that um, I was at Regent when I made that film also. That uh, there was a Black History Month screening and I forget which one of the movies with uh, Bill Cosby and Sidney Poitier she was in, but I saw her and I always thought she was so beautiful whenever I was young. So I said, hey, let me reach out to her. So I was able to actually, I was actually able to find her. She was living in Paris at the time. Oh. Yeah, I found her through her daughter who was living in the States and she agreed to do it. So, you know, just basic hustling relationships. And, the, you know, and they, they came together and it was an, an, an incredible cast. And shucks, that film is the reason why you and I are talking. I so kudos to Corpus because that's how we're on the phone right now. Doing this podcast. 
That is so true. And I saw the film and I was like, oh my God. And to know that this one actually did this, I mean, that's what's actually even crazier. They say that, you know, sometimes true life is crazier than fiction. Yeah, and I agree with that. And, you know, the, the, the similarities in, you know, because that guy in Detroit, they found the dad's body in, a, in the guy's freezer. So, you know, I didn't want to make that story <laughs> at all. But, you know, the, the film that I made is the story of a man who can't get over the death of his father, so he steals his body from the funeral home. And, you know, it, it, it really deals with really, really death, uh, passing on a legacy, you know, the fear of taking on the mantle of leadership, mm -hmm. fatherhood, power and importance of family and generations. So, you know, and that film, interestingly enough, is rife with subtext and symbolism. And, you know, whenever I teach you know, my film analysis class, I always love to show that film because students, they gravitate toward it and they're able to write really compelling papers that uh, showcase their intelligence and their brilliance and even teach me about things that I hadn't considered myself. And when you do create film, is that your goal? I mean, for some people, they make film to make people laugh or some people, you know, for escapism. But a lot of people, I would say a lot of filmmakers do make their films to teach lessons. What was the lesson you wanted people to get out of that film? Well, the, the lesson was that in the darkest place, God sees you and he is using that to bring you into the light. I was dealing with depression and it was making that film actually lifted me out of this depression. And what that also taught me is that when you're operating in your purpose, there's a degree of joy and hope that you experience. So that movie, it, it lifted to this dark place that I've been in. You know, in the film, you know, it starts off there in the light, but then not only is the film dark as far as the lighting that's at night, the character is in a dark place, but you know, he actually finds his purpose and his lily and the thing that will enable him to continue the legacy of his family in his darkest, darkest moment. Well, I mean, that's really, really powerful. And I think that I would have never known that, you know, for watching the film, especially, you know, the fact admitting that you've gone through depression, a lot of us, you know, do, and a lot of Black men do. And it's something that a lot of us sometimes don't want to talk about, you know, especially as Black people or as a Black man, you know, it's something that a lot of us don't, well, I'm not a man, but a lot of Black men tend <laughs> to talk about. But I really feel that, I'm happy that the film was the, a light for you and, and that was, you know, able to gather your depression from it. Absolutely. So what's next for you? I, I know you're, you're a professor and are you working on any projects in Atlanta right now? I am. I actually just wrapped uh, a short film that uh, we're editing right now. The story of a young black man who puts himself at risk to save a young white woman in distress. And it's a uh, it's a powerful tale of perception, identity, and race with a literary light motif. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited about that because the writer is a, a former film school classmate of mine named Mandel Holland, and it's the first thing that I've directed that I didn't write. But he and I were talking and trying to figure out. I'm like, hey man, you know, I'm looking for a short film. I just wrapped another short that I'd done last summer, and uh, this consistent theme of you know, as an African-American man, in far too many instances, you show up and then people see you, they see a black man, they don't see your gifts, they don't see your talents, and then you have to deal with the negative ramifications that are associated with that. You know, and black women deal with that too. Even our kids deal with that. Oh, it's a black kid in the classroom. And then, you know, what you demonstrate that you are, you know, uh, intelligent or, or caring or, or thoughtful or whatever the case may be, it's like, okay, yeah, okay, he or she's okay. You know, but that's a burden that many other people don't have to deal with. Right. That's what this film is dealing with. 
these issues of you can't judge a book by its cover. And I'm pretty excited about that one being done. And I'm also working on a screenplay with uh, Derek Williams. And it's an adaptation of a book called The Third Option. It's a really, really interesting story. He's a former NFL player who, um, you know, is strung out on cocaine, who now has a, a, a mega church in San Diego. But the film deals with racial reconciliation. Miles mm-hmm. McPherson is uh, biracial. And, you know, he came up in the 70s on Long Island and really had issues with not being accepted by, you know, blacks, not being accepted by whites and you know, having these challenges related to race, but it's those very challenges that he's now using to bring the races together. So I'm pretty excited about about that. Wow, that's awesome. I'm glad that you're busy working. I think it's, you know, a really great time for, I think it's a great time for um, independent filmmakers. What are your thoughts now with this? I feel like it's a renaissance of, of content in so many different avenues. Do you think this is a good time for for independent filmmakers? I do, and, and it's for several reasons, and not just you know because of the number of uh, distribution platforms that are now available, but also equipment. I mean, it, it used to be that if you didn't have thousands upon thousands of dollars, there's just no way that you could get in because it was too expensive. You know, but now, I mean, you can shoot a film, a relatively cheap camera, smaller crews, and you can get out and tell your story. As a matter of fact, I taught a directing class um, when I was at Hampton University, and um, the students shot and edited their films on their phones if that was a requirement. People have in their pocket a camera that is arguably better than the 16 millimeter film cameras I used in film school. It's pretty revolutionary. And you can edit it on your laptop with free software and then post it on the internet and have self-distribution. It's just, you know, there's just no reason for you not to make your film these days. Right. At least get started, try, right? Absolutely. Go just go out and do and see what becomes of it. So before we go, I usually ask this question of all the Quilly filmmakers, the Quilly creators. You know, Quilly means truth. And so we're about telling authentic stories, which is which is what you do. What makes you an authentic filmmaker? Well, interestingly, you know, that, that it means truth. My son, uh, my only begotten son, I have three daughters. My son, his name is Truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we chose that name because, um, you know, initially I wanted to name my son after me, Booker T. Mm-hmm. Addison. And then I said, you know what, I think that's kind of arrogant. I don't want to do that. And then my wife, she said, you know, well, what about truth? Because me personally, because you're so committed to truth, let's name it truth. So the authenticity springs from a love and a desire for truth. Mm-hmm. Being truthful with characters, being truthful with stories, and even being truthful with, you know, the antagonist, the quote, bad guy or bad woman. Because, you know, I tell my students that there's no such thing as a bad guy or bad woman because even people that do dirt as a creator you have to make sure that you're not judging your character you know you have to love them all so the fact that I'm, I'm trying to create real life in a way that makes the world better I think that is where my authenticity comes from as a filmmaker awesome awesome this has been a really great conversation you can watch both of Booker's films on Quilly TV and I'm so excited that you're on our platform this has been a really great conversation so thank you well thank you so much for having me and i look forward to hopefully getting some more work on your platform yes that's that's what i could hear (laughs) (laughs) all right have a good day okay take care Bye. bye